Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's hot and it's humid this July day in Los Angeles. And what you're about to hear is part two of my talk at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. I end my presentation with a short blues harmonica solo. If you're curious about the harmonica that I play, it's a Suzuki Promaster diatonic in the key of C. It has a solid aluminum comb. Well, I hope you find it interesting, and I hope you find it useful. So without further introduction, part two of my presentation at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Um, what I'd like to do before I get into the meditation aspect, loud feedback, uh, is it, is the hand held off? Oh, there's handhelds down there, is it, is that? Testing, testing. Testing. Do you want me to use the handheld? Okay. Uh, I can't remember which one. Okay. Let's try that one then. We'll try another mic. Okay. Okay. Testing, testing. No, I don't have it on yet. Okay. Okay. Testing, testing. Testing, testing. That's it? Okay. Piece of junk. <laughs> so before I get into the, uh, the, the, the meditation category, the Eightfold Path, I'd like to talk about uh, the role of service in Buddhism. Um, when I became a, a Buddhist, uh, I, I didn't intend to uh, be of service to anyone other than myself. And, and in some forms of Buddhism, that's appropriate. That's okay. The Buddha said this world is unsatisfactory. This is the world of samsara. This is where all birth and death occur. You cannot save the world. And I said to myself, great, I don't have to worry about it then. Um, and then I got a call from Deacon Szymanski. I mentioned that. And for a year, I was a volunteer at uh, L.A. County State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California. For five years, I was a Buddhist volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles. And I went uh, once a week to talk to the young people about Buddhism. There weren't a whole lot of Buddhists there. Um, and the first presentation I gave was in the High Risk Offenders Unit. And these were guys who were in there because of rape and killing and carjacking, and most of them were going to go to prison after their time at juvenile hall. And I wasn't sure if I could do it, because these guys seemed pretty intimidating to me. And so I walked in there and felt immediately comfortable. Every guy there had my haircut. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, we can relate to each other. So I started my presentation by saying, is anybody here suffering? And then one hand went up 
And then one other hand went up. And finally, enough hands went up that I said to myself, this is my audience. They need to hear about suffering and how to end their suffering. And, and that's how I started. And I would go into the classrooms for a while until they found out I was there uh, because of the church and state thing. Can't mix those things together. And I can remember this one very Christian lady, teacher. I was invited by uh, the administration to speak to her class, and she didn't want me there. And she came up to me with her finger extended and said, You know, you can't talk about God in the classroom. And I said, No problem. I learned a lot about young people. I asked one girl, she was there for a robbery, and this was her first time at Juvenile Hall. I said, what do you miss most about being in Juvenile Hall? She said, I miss carbonation. They don't give us any sodas here at all. And I thought of all the things she could miss. Isn't that an odd thing to miss? But it just goes to show you what happens when we become confined. And in monastic tradition, sometimes when we become confined, we start to miss things that we didn't think we'd miss. And I I noticed at at St. John's, they have plenty of soda machines, so I'm okay. (laughs) I I also felt a great sadness seeing the girls there. And, And I'm a guy, and I didn't mind seeing the guys there because I figured they deserved to be there. But, but they had 40, maybe 50 girls at any one time in Central Juvenile Hall, and, and they're kept secluded. They, they're in the, like in this corner of the, of the uh, compound, and, and it's hard to get to them because they don't want guys getting to the girls or girls getting to the guys. And, and so I was invited to, to lead meditation a few times in their unit, and it was like going to a slumber party. You know, they would sit on the floor in their pajamas, and there'd be things on the wall, and they all looked so... Just pure and innocent. And I'm thinking, gosh, why are you here? And then one was a prostitute and one sold drugs and one was an accessory to a murder and one had HIV. And, and I'm going, geez, you know, life is really difficult. I was learning so much about how hard it is to be a human being, whether you're 10, 20, 50, or 80. At any point in our life, life can be difficult. So after five years there... I was invited to speak at the mayor's prayer breakfast in Garden Grove. There was an article in the newspaper about me, and the mayor's office called me up and said, could you give a presentation at the mayor's prayer breakfast? I said, well, I don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. (laughs) Is that okay? And he said, that's fine. And, And the chief of police was in the audience, and it wasn't two weeks later that the chief of police called me up and asked if I would be a volunteer police chaplain for Garden Grove. And I, I'd always liked to show cops, you know, and thought it might be interesting to be in the car and have my very own bulletproof vest. And I do. I have my very own bulletproof vest, and I have a hat that says chaplain, and I have a jacket that says chaplain. And the reason I have chaplain all over my body is so the bad guys know that I'm the good guy. And I'm thinking, but if the bad guy's an atheist, I get it first. And so far, so good. And... And what I realized when these guys get in, guys and gals get in the police car, that could be the last day of their life. They don't know. And yet they still get in the car. Service and duty. One of the officers asked me, you know, being a police officer, I have the right to use lethal force to protect the community, to serve the community. As a Buddhist, how do you feel about that? 
Think it's okay for us to kill people? And I had to think, and I had to be skillful. And I said to him, uh, never kill out of anger or hatred. Only service and duty to the community. That will limit the karmic consequences of that action. But it won't change it completely. So, in Buddhism, we don't have justice. In Buddhism, we don't have right and wrong. In Buddhism, we don't have good and bad. We lack a divine lawgiver to define for us what is right and what is wrong. Rather, in Buddhism, we have karma, cause and consequence. We have more suffering, less suffering. We have skillful, unskillful. And I haven't met an evil person yet. I've met a lot of unskillful people, causing a lot of suffering in the world. But not one evil person have I seen so far. After seven years at the Garden Grove Police Department, I'm about to retire and go into different forms of service. But I'm also at UCLA, and I have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. I'm so glad Vatican Council II, Vatican II happened because we can use the chapel. Protestants have never invited us to use their chapel. And, and what I find about the Catholics and the Buddhists, my teacher, Dr. Havan Polo Ratnasara, was co-founder with Monsignor Royal Vatican of the L.A. Buddhist-Catholic Dialogue, which has been going on since 1989. And I started going there in 1994, and I asked my teacher, Dr. Ratnasara, he invited me to go to the Buddhist-Catholic Dialogue, and I was nervous, because I knew Catholics knew a lot of stuff. And I didn't know what to say, and, and I said, well, should I read something about Catholicism before I go, so I know more about it? And my teacher said, you don't have to worry about that, they'll tell you. I said, okay. Well, should I be worried about the dialogue itself? Are they going to attack us as Buddhists? And he said, no, they're very kind. And and our job is not to defend Buddhism. Our job is to define Buddhism. And and the Buddhist-Catholic dialogue in Los Angeles continues since 1989. Every month we get together, we share food first, and we speak about topics. One of the topics was was the Holy Spirit. And we don't have any spirits that are holy in Buddhism. They're all rascals and cause a lot of problems. So it made a great dialogue, and we both learned a lot. But these communities coming together and sharing their perspectives and not being afraid to do that, living in community, realizing at some level we're all connected even though we're different, that the world may never be one, but the world will be connected and unified if we let it happen, I think. So I'm always excited about speaking to other religions. The Mormons, I have a great time speaking to them. They have a really interesting cosmology that I find just fascinating. And they're very nice people, too. I like speaking to the Jews. They have an interesting afterlife as well, almost Hindu in their approach. And the Muslims, also, I find so much joy in speaking about other religions. And somebody asked me one time, well, is Buddhism the best religion? And I said, well, Buddhism is the best religion for Buddhists, but that's about it. (laughs) So, and I suppose Catholicism is the best religion for Catholics, and that's cool too. So, at UCLA, I'm, I'm with the students, I have some great questions, but I'm also at the medical center. 
and I give presentations to new chaplains at the UCLA Medical Center on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. And Buddhists get sick differently than Catholics or Protestants or Jews or Muslims, and Buddhists die differently as well. And, and I need to alert the chaplains to the differences. And I find that to be the most challenging of all. I didn't mind going to the prisons. I didn't mind going to juvenile hall. But it's very difficult for me to go and speak to someone who's terminal or just really sick. And I was giving a presentation at the City of Hope. And one of the chaplains at the City of Hope heard I was there and asked if I would speak to a patient. And I said, I'd be happy to. And I was in my presentation mode, and I was big, and I had plenty to say. And I knew I could help this patient. And as we're walking across the campus of City of Hope, I said, do they call this City of Hope because it's the last hope? And she said, yes, sometimes this is the last hope for people. So I drew myself together and realized I had just consented to do something very challenging. And I walked into the room. She was 24 years old, terminal cancer, only had a couple months to live. Her mother had a cot in the corner, and they were living together in this hospital. And my breath was taken away. I lost my breath, and I became confused for a few moments. And I couldn't figure out what it was, because I had planned on saying something to start off the conversation, and nothing came out of my mouth. And I realized I had just stepped into the present moment experience where no future or past existed. There was no future or past in this room. There was just now. And I realized everything I had planned on saying would be inappropriate because I was going to speak about past and future. So I just listened. And I said to her, what do you want to know? What questions do you have? And, and she had some very basic questions. She had just found out about Buddhism, and I answered her questions. But I, I realized how impotent I was. I couldn't give her any hope. I, I really couldn't even give her a religion. Four months is not long enough to become a Buddhist. And, and, and we don't have that faith aspect in some cases that allow us to say, yes, all you have to have is faith and you'll go to heaven. Sometimes you need to have a few years of work under your belt before heaven's available to you. So I, I realized the challenge of being a volunteer. And I, and I said to myself, well, why am I a volunteer? In a lot of cases, I hate it. I'm underappreciated. I never get any money. I only get certificates. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I don't feel good. I don't feel like I've ever succeeded at anything as a volunteer. I don't see any immediate change in the people I'm talking to or the institutions I'm going to. Why am I a volunteer? What in Buddhism would lead me in that direction? And I figured it out. And the reason uh, Buddhists are volunteers is because people are suffering. And if somebody's suffering and says, can you come and help, a Buddhist would say, yes, of course. That's why Buddhism is in the world. So I suffer too. I go into these institutions, I go into these situations, and I suffer too because there's not much you can do other than be present and look at that human being and realize you're both on a journey together. And no one gets out of this journey alive. This is our team. We've assembled our team today. In a hundred years, we'll all be dead. So it may not matter at all. 
But while we're here, according to Buddhism, there's a lot of work to do. <sighs> meditation. Two forms of meditation. Tranquility meditation, insight meditation. Vipassana, samatha. As I mentioned earlier, the Buddha was taught how to do samatha meditation, and we discovered insight meditation. In samatha meditation, there's something called the four jhanas, the four levels of tranquility. The first jhana has five characteristics, and we're going to speak about more about this tonight as well. The five characteristics of the first jhana are applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The three characteristics of the second jhana are happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The two characteristics of the third jhana are happiness and equanimity. The one characteristic of the fourth jhana is equanimity. If you're doing Buddhist meditation correctly, you're getting rid of stuff. You're not gaining anything. So what does this mean in real terms? It means this. Our object of meditation, for instance, could be the sensation of breath, going out and coming in, going out and coming in. We apply our thought and we hold it there. Applied thought, sustained thought. If we are focused, if we are concentrated, if we have one-pointedness, a sense of physical pleasure arises in the body, a sense of mental happiness arises in the mind, and the first glimmer of equanimity or balance also arises. As we continue to practice, we find that we don't even need to intend our attention to be with the sensation of breath. Now it simply rests there all by itself. So the second jhana has happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Now applied thought and sustained thought aren't necessary. But to get to the third jhana, we got to give something up because Buddhism is a path of renunciation. So what are we going to give up? Are we going to give up equanimity? Nope. Going to give up happiness? Nope. Not yet. We're going to give up pleasure. And you say to yourself as a meditator, sitting comfortably or uncomfortably on the ground, how can I give up pleasure? Pleasure is great. I have a body. My body has so many moments of pleasure. A little bit of pain occasionally, but a lot of pleasure. And you want me to give that up? What benefit do I get from giving up pleasure? As it turns out, you give up pain. If you can figure out how to give up pleasure, you can figure out how to give up pain. Well, cool. So let's say the meditator decides to go in that direction. I'm giving up pleasure for five minutes just to see how it feels. And they slip into the next jhana, and now they have two characteristics left, happiness and equanimity. Well, to get to the last jhana, you've got to give something up. And now you've got to give up happiness. And you say, my gosh, giving up pleasure is not enough. I have to give up happiness too. But if I give up happiness, I'm giving up sadness. And that might not be so bad. So finally, after giving up pleasure and happiness, we find ourselves in the fourth jhana, perfect balance of mind, equanimity, clarity and kindness. You will not suffer at this level of concentration. But there's a problem with this level of concentration. It only works while you're sitting in the zendo with the incense burning and the Buddha smiling. As soon as you get up off the cushion, get into your car and hit the freeway, you are back to your old self. And you go, gosh, it was fine while it lasted, but it didn't last. And that's what the Buddha saw. 
the Buddha had a problem with this. He said, can I figure out a way to make it permanent? And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation, and that allowed him to liberate himself, to end his suffering forever. Four kinds of insight meditation, four kinds of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of sensations. I'm going to talk about sensations. Mindfulness of sensations. The Buddha said we have three kinds of sensations. We have good sensations, we have unpleasant sensations, and we have neutral sensations. And the idea is to go into a momentary state of concentration and scan from the top of your head to the tip of your toes and look for sensations. How many sensations physically and mentally can you become aware of in 20 minutes? And you simply recognize them and label them as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and go find the next one. After that's been accomplished, the real work begins. Now you go into a state of reflection and you seek out the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that are found in every one of those sensations. And the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. Wow. So let's talk about impermanence. Were all these sensations impermanent, or did they have the same intensity the whole time? And I think if you're clear and honest with yourself, you've noticed that most sensations have a vibratory nature. Sometimes they're more severe and sometimes they're less severe. And I do ride a motorcycle, as Father William alluded to. And sometimes on a motorcycle, your bladder needs to be emptied. And I remember being in the desert one time, having about a half hour to get to my destination, and realized I needed to go to the bathroom. But then the sensation seemed to magically go away, and I said to myself, I can do it. And it wasn't ten minutes later that that sensation came back, and it was even worse than it was before. And I said, no, I can't do it, and I found a nice tree, and life was good again. But there was this vibratory, almost going away sometimes and then coming back with a vengeance to simply get your attention that something needed to be done. So realizing that every sensation had this vibratory nature, had this impermanent quality about it, I then took that understanding, that insight, and applied it to the world around me and said, is there anything here that doesn't change? And after careful consideration, the conclusion I came to was everything in the world is always in a constant state of change and flux. And so, wow, how can I get attached to anything really if it's always changing? And in the old days when I had girlfriends, I'd often be attached to my girlfriend and just really appreciated her her good looks and sense of humor and mind. But you know, about 20 years down the road, Everything's different. And I'm different too. So to be attached to that would lead to suffering because that's very impermanent. Attached to your job or your profession. Things are changing so quickly now. People are re-educating themselves and retraining themselves constantly just to stay up with the ever-changing job market. So there's no place we can stand that doesn't change. So yeah, deep insight. 
The second insight, is everything ultimately unsatisfactory? This is a tough one because people think this is pessimistic. And it shouldn't be that way. Well, if you look at all your sensations and you had clarity, you would say that some of those sensations felt pretty good, very pleasurable. And other sensations weren't so good. And some sensations didn't matter. And then you would apply impermanence to the good sensations, and you would say, well, even the good sensations are ultimately unsatisfactory because of change and impermanence. So if I get attached to anything that feels good, I'll be disappointed eventually. Wow, and aren't we all attached to things that feel good? I sort of like Hershey's syrup on vanilla ice cream. And, you know, if you can put some penis on that, it's even better. And, and I realized, gosh, yeah, but, you know, it leads to suffering, especially that night. You know, the stomach isn't what it used to be. Man. The third part is the hardest. This, this insight took me oh, years to finally break through. It was code. I couldn't break the code. And this was not self. This was no self, not self. This was no soul, not soul. This was no individual, not an individual. This was like, well, but who am I? It's like that kind of problem. And, and I bought a book by Ken Wilber called The Spectrum of Consciousness, which allowed me to see through that problem. Did any of those sensations have an essence, an original, independent, unconditional essence? Or were all those sensations conditional? And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I hadn't been sitting on the floor in that way, if I hadn't been 45, if the room had been warmer, it would have all been different. So it seemed that every one of those sensations was conditional. If certain conditions were there, the sensation arose. If certain conditions weren't there, the sensation didn't arise. Okay, so none of them existed independently. And, and, and now I looked at the world, and I said to myself, does anything in the world exist independently? Do I exist independently? And then I remember a book I read back in the late 70s, early 80s, called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Pierzig. And what a wonderful book that is. I have it in audio form on my iPod now and revisit it often. It just reminds me about certain things that I keep forgetting. But in this book, in the story, he was a professor. And one of the, one of the class assignments was to write a paper on quality. And every student failed. Every student knew what quality was when they saw it, but they couldn't define it, and they couldn't find out where it came from. And I said, wouldn't it have been cool if in this book, the author and his buddy, who had the BMW, took the Honda and BMW out to a Walmart parking lot and took the motorcycles apart into 10,000 pieces and given them each a magnifying glass and say to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which piece of part does it exist? And then I imagine them looking carefully at each piece and part for the quality of their motorcycle and coming up empty-handed. And yet somehow when those parts and pieces came together and created one, quality rose. 
And I said to myself, wow, I'm one. I'm one Kusala. And that's why I seem to have a self or a sense of self. And yet if you took all my pieces and parts and laid them out, where does Kusala exist then? I said, okay. But how about one? Is one really an important number, I said to myself. And then I thought back to the 60s. And in the 60s, one was the loneliest number that you ever heard. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, what is this one thing? Why do we, why is one the best number? You know, it's like one nation under God. And I bet some people like to put one God. And I'm thinking, yeah, we, we think the ideal, the perfect, the perfection is in one. And that, now we find ourselves in a postmodern age, and we seem to be deconstructing the one, whatever the one is, to see the pieces. What pieces created the one? And where is the essence of the one? Where does one really exist? Hmm, is there any one at all? And then I read another article called Not Self, No Self. And this led me in the direction of, well, we do have a self, and we are one at a relative level. And that's how we function. We need to be separate from each other. If I'm on the freeway on my motorcycle at 70 miles an hour, I need to be separate from the car next to me. I can't be one with it. And yet somehow, ultimately, it turns out that it could be one, perhaps, Except in Buddhism, we have sort of a hierarchy of gods, sort of this pantheon theory kind of thing. So it never turns into be one god is the best god. It's like one god is a better god, but never the best one. And, and then I'm thinking, but everybody thinks if we could make everything one, it would be like a utopia. We could all be one people, all one nation, all one language, all one food. How wonderful it would be. And yet, as I look at the world, I start to see all this diversity, and I don't see one anywhere. I see unity, and I see diversity. And that unity and diversity allow me to exist independently, but allow me to exist connected to everyone else at exactly the same time. The dance we do in Buddhism is to try to dance between the relative and the ultimate. Unity, diversity. Unity, diversity. I'm here in a relative level. I am absolutely empty at an ultimate level. As I continue to pursue this line of thought, I started to see that the ego, the self, was a good tool, but a terrible master. It kept giving me in all sorts of trouble because I knew how things were. And we have a wonderful woman that lives at the center where I live. Her name is Mary. And I know Mary could have a better life if she would just listen to me. But she says, Kusla, you don't understand. It's this way. And I started to see that everybody has a this way. And everybody has sort of their own way of looking at stuff. And yet, somehow, we all get together and get along, to some extent, and create community. And I'm thinking, how cool is that? So if we were all one, what would we do with the ones that didn't fit? Where would we put them? Now, in the old days, England put them in Australia. And it worked out fine for Australia, so... 
So this meditation allowed me to perceive my life and my relationship to life in a much different way. I had no, I didn't suspect it would come out this way. Well, now we're coming to the last two path factors. Now we're talking about the big deal. Now we're going to talk about nirvana. So the last two path factors are right view and right intention. Right view of the Four Noble Truths at a mundane and supramundane level, at a relative level and an ultimate level, at an intellectual level and a knowing level, an intuitive level. And then having the right intention. The intention of generosity, the intention of compassion, the intention of loving kindness. If those three intentions are our only intentions, everything we say and do will manifest skillfully in the world and suffering will be reduced. Our suffering and suffering of others as well. And now we come to this sticking point for me, nirvana. The ultimate goal in Buddhism. Now, we have heavens in Buddhism. We have 31 heavens and we have 31 hells. We have a whole lot of places to go. But the goal is not to go to heaven because heaven is temporary. It's not forever in Buddhism. So eventually we have to leave and suffering occurs. We want to achieve nirvana. But I'm thinking to myself, this is a hard sell. I'm in a high school talking about self-extinction as being the ultimate goal in Buddhism. And then I had to define nirvana at a level that I could understand. And it seems to be this. Nirvana, achieved while you're alive, like Siddhartha, is the end of suffering. Nirvana, after you're dead, is a much different beast altogether. It seems to me, I'm going to qualify this, it seems to me that when a person achieves nirvana while they're alive, when they die, they continue to exist, but not because of creation, not because of birth, but because of nirvana. And if you're existing because of nirvana and not creation, you never have to get sick, you never have to get old, and you never have to die again. And people say, but that's such a difficult concept because everything in the world was created. Is there anything in this world that wasn't created? There is not one thing in this world that wasn't created. And thankfully, as a Buddhist, I do not have to define the Creator. Some Buddhists feel that God created the world. And Buddhism is okay with that. Some Buddhists feel that maybe the Big Bang Theory is more exciting. Buddhism is okay with that. My personal preference is a website devoted to the flying spaghetti monster, who seems to be the Creator of all of this. So we don't have to go there. But we do have to recognize the fact that everything that's created has to die. And nirvana is beyond creation. Nirvana is beyond birth and beyond death. And that is the ultimate goal for a Buddhist. Any questions? <laughs> There's, was I clear on, on how I described... Uh, the Buddhist path. Everybody feel comfortable with that? I brought my harmonica. Now, I know a lot of you are not going to be impressed by this. And in the old days, the Buddhist monks used to have these nice bamboo flutes, you know. But I'm a 60s guy, and I, and I play the blues. And when you think about it, what better music for a Buddhist to play than the blues? So, so this is a little blues before lunch. Here we go.
that's it. That was part two of my presentation at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, you can find them on iTunes under Urban Dharma or at dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.